3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today sees the release of the new Netflix series Vikings Valhalla, the successor to the hugely popular show Vikings. Set 100 years after the original series, it follows three figures from the sagas, Leif Eriksson, Freydis Eriksdottir and Harold Sigurdsson, whose journeys begin in the wake of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre of 1002. Kev Lodgen spoke to the showrunner of Vikings Valhalla, Jeb Stewart. They spoke about the real history behind the show, the challenges of balancing fact and fiction and how the series could take us all the way up to 1066.
0: Jeb, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new Netflix series Vikings Valhalla, which is a spin-off and successor to Michael Hirst's hugely successful series Vikings. It's set around 100 years after season 6 of Vikings finishes and introduces us to a new generation of Viking warriors and rulers. My first question is really a grounding one, in that the series is subtitled Valhalla, Valhalla being the believed afterlife of Norse warriors. I wonder why did you choose that particular word to encapsulate this entire series? When I
4: found the place to come in on the series, we knew that we knew some of the characters that we really wanted to go after, you know, Harold Sigursson, Leif Erickson, uh, you know, Freitas Eric's daughter, Eric the Red. That, that group, and of course, they all encompass not necessarily the same period, but a, a, a generally a reasonable amount of of time that, you know, we could put them together. We're in a period in Scandinavian history where Christianity has really started to, as we say sometimes in the series, it's like a wave that's come across. And most of Western Europe at this time in the 11th century had already experienced conversion to Christianity by, you know, by centuries. Scandinavia was sort of that last holdout. It's that place where the you know the, the 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 pagan the old pagan ways are starting to just gradually start to let go. And whereas Michael's series really dealt with the, the Lind raid, the, the the mythical parts of Ragnar Lothbrok and all of the beginnings of the Viking era, you know my series really deals with sort of the latter half of the Viking era, and so. If you think about that, you know, uh, to your point of Valhalla being sort of the 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 afterlife of all great Viking warriors, you know, one of the two places that you could you could end up, uh, and 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 a great place to end up, where you die in battle and the Valkyries take you, and you you know you sit at Odin's table and, table with all your friends and you drink until Ragnarok comes around. It just felt like uh, there was a sense of almost nostalgia, and I know nostalgia is not something that pops to mind in a Viking show, but it 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 really is and as we as we develop these characters and they have to give up some of that, you know, give up some of the old ways. Um as we see them having to deal with Christianity, what does that mean? How does that work? And all those kind of things, Valhalla becomes a more and more important word as the series goes along.
0: It's really interesting to hear you speak of how the earlier show dealt with beginnings and where Valhalla is going now because well I've watched away episodes and I've really enjoyed them, but it felt very much this is Kind of setting up a beginning of an end. And I'd like to talk about a beginning and an end as we go along. But I'll start at the beginning. And that's where your story kicks off, which is with the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. And that's kind of the linchpin event that really gets the plot going. I wonder, could you tell us what that event is and why you chose to start there?
4: Well, you know, the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, which happened in 1002, um, uh, it was an interesting piece for me because it allowed me to kind of Peg the Vikings in an almost an underdog fashion to start with, which I kind of like always when you're telling a story and we're getting away from sort of the historical parts, But some of the things that I like in history is is coming into uh, a period. I, I do this all the time and I'm sure, you know, your listeners do where you feel I know everything there is to know about X, X, Y and Z. And then suddenly you get in and you read a new you know, piece of archaeological research or a new paper, or some new piece of history that suddenly turns the story around, maybe not 180 degrees, but maybe it turns it about 90 degrees, and suddenly you're looking at it from a different angle. And what St. Bryce's name asked for me, because we were, you know, I think internationally, we we were, when this whole series was just sort of a twinkle in my eye, Internationally, we're dealing with these great big ideological splits, the right and the left and, you know, all of those type of things. It was fascinating to me that in the 11th century, King Athelred was dealing with a very similar problem. For over 100, almost 150, maybe even 200 years, if you want to go way back, he was dealing with Viking immigrants. And they were coming over and settling in these areas of the Dane law, which if you look at a, a 10th century map of England, you know, we're starting to really encroach upon London and the South and, 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 and they were starting to marry into Saxon society. And if you, if you, if you look at it, 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 it was already to the point where Athelred's own personal bodyguard were all Viking descendants. And, um, and so I thought this was a very fascinating thing. And as he said very clearly in his, Speech a year later, you know, it was a just extermination. He termed it an extermination. He wanted it to be a genocide, but he would not have undertaken that, Kevin, in my opinion, had he not thought that back up in Norway, the Vikings who were at each other's throats, the Christians and the pagans, would not have come together. And historically, we've seen this time and time and time again that, you know, uh, sometimes great forces. Uh, you know, you know, despots and and dictators use certain opportunities where they take calculated risks that the, you know, that the person they're going to, to fight will not get their act together. And in this case, of course, King Canute was able to unite the, the Vikings, both pagan and Christian, and they did come to England and the rest was history, so to speak.
0: You mentioned there about unrest in Scandinavia at the time. And it's a really interesting section of the story that Valhalla portrays. Is a Viking society that's riven internally with this religious tension between those who adopted Christianity and those who still worship the Norse gods. And I just wondered how you approach that when we have this stereotypical image of all Vikings being pagans.
4: Uh, well, there are two parts to that. I mean, first of all, the the the, the christian part of it you know we have to remember that even in the 11th century christianity as we think of it today was was probably not you know the uh, the religion that we would you would see in sweden or parts of norway or, or denmark at that time you know it was a politically expedient tool you know it, it was it was it was the type of thing that if um uh you, you got a lot of perks if you converted over especially if you were in the ruling class um and yet, you know, there's plenty of instances where, you know, the rulers would, would sort of nod to Rome, but then they could also celebrate the gods that, you know, they had grown up on at the same time. So it was a long conversion period, much longer than it was in France at the time or obviously other parts of, of Europe. Um, but um, I, I think this was and, and I may not be answering your question, but I think that it, it, it's for me, again, what does a Christian Viking look like? How, how different is that than a pagan Viking? And of course, uh, I don't think you have to look at too far in history, the Crusades being you know, one of the things that came on the doorstep of this particular series, to see that you know just being a Christian uh, warrior doesn't really stop you from slaughter or anything else. So I think that the Vikings felt quite comfortable. The Christian Vikings didn't have any problem with their identity um, as Vikings.
0: Now you're telling these kind of wider stories through the eyes of three lead characters. We mentioned a couple of them earlier, but just to recap, they are the Nordic Prince Harold Sigurdsson, who perhaps we might know a little better as Harold Harderada, and there are two Greenlanders, the brother and sister Leif and Freydis Eriksson. Now we should say that these are real historical figures and they do appear in the sagas, but could you perhaps ground us here and tell us a little bit about what the sagas are and what they tell us about these three people?
4: Most of what we know, or think we know, about Leif Erikson and and uh, and his sister Fredis Eric's daughter, um, who were you know obviously children of Eric the Red, um, we know from the sagas of the Greenlanders and and uh, and and just keep in mind that there was no written language, you know, there was no written Old Norse at that particular time, so um, a, a lot of these are just stories that have been told and retold. The sagas, of course, were told in, I believe, the 12th century. The point is, it, it, by the time we get to the 12th century, we're definitely well into Christianity. So you're in a situation where, you know, telling the story of, say, Freyda daughter, who was a fierce, really fierce female character, brutal in fact, um, you know, showing her in, in sort of an uncultured way is, is, is also, it, it, it does two things. One, it builds up that mythic, you know, piece about her, but it also points back and say, "Look, we're in better places from from a Christian standpoint now than we were back then." Um, so, um, you, I always, I read them, and I, you know, and I still look at certain sections of the sagas as sort of a guidepost. But they were human characters, and uh, and they're going through the same thing that our human character, you know, we do in the twenty first century. So, I'm trying to find relevant pieces, not just go on what the sagas tell us.
0: It's interesting to hear how you talk about the sagas there. Vikings Valhalla it struck me almost by kind of uh, the necessity of the paucity of, some of these historical sources. You have these fictional character storylines that are kind of threaded around real events on a much broader scale. How do you balance those facts with telling a great story? You know, I, I was doing
4: a World War II story once um, and uh, it was based on a. a true story, you know, and about a true character. And the book was well, very well researched. And, um, but I typically, whenever I take over a story, I kind of, I, you know, would read the underlying material. And then I go out on my own and start to research it. And one of the things that I found was that a lot of the underlying material for that World War II story based upon this person's real life was told to the author in 2010. But I went back and read the same characters telling of the story in 1990 and it was a little different and i went back to 1972 and he gave an interview and it was completely different in 1961 it was totally different in 1954 so it, it shows you how a true story bends sometimes with the age of the character that's telling the story uh, it becomes like the, the telephone game So what we try to do is be extremely accurate to things that we have a a great handle on. For example, costumes, boats, you know, the artifacts of the the surroundings of our story. Uh, Cadigat, our fictional town, only has buildings which would have, and we have evidence that would have existed in the 11th century in that particular fictional part of Norway that we're we're working in. In other words, we're not going to show two or three story buildings that are built of stone that you would have found, you know, other places. So we're, we're very accurate in those areas where we where we take liberty or where I take liberty, being the, I'm, I hate to make that the royal way, but the, where I take liberty when I when I'm telling the story in one way or the other is I like to play in the gray area. OK, we know that a, a character got to London at X. We know that, you know, something happened that, you know, that's been written about multiple times, but we don't know sometimes is what his motivation or his thinking was or who came into contact. We just don't have that piece. That's that gray area I'm talking about. Well, I can give you a story in any gray area. So, uh, but I like having it buttressed by the facts around that, that allow it to be something, you know, something believable that I, uh, you know, that I feel could very, you know, specifically happen. And then of course... Whenever I do have an ideal idea like that, Kevin, I do run it by our researchers because, you know, the researchers a lot of times will say, uh, "Well, maybe," you know, "a maybe is not really good enough." But, you know, you know, what I'm not looking for is a yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's like no one knows, but it needs to have certain aspects of it that just are unassailable. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have a spaceship come down in Norway. And I mean, I'm not going to have a spaceship come down anywhere or a dragon or anything like that. But you know what I'm saying? We're just we 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 know where our, you know, our areas are. That said, the Vikings, Michael Hurst show. You know, put Rollo and Ragnar as brothers, and anyone who knows history knows that that didn't happen. A and B. If if it had happened, it would have meant that Rollo would have born, been born two hundred years early. So, you, you you know, the audience didn't have much difficulty accepting that and moving forward because so much of the rest of the show is so accurate. So I'm I took precedent from Michael, and you know, I've got Leif and Harold Sigerson together, but I don't think it. I don't think it, you know, stops the story.
0: We should also talk about the relationship between your show and Michael Hurst's as well. Um, I felt somewhat inevitable because fans of historical Viking drama fiction are likely to have watched both shows, that you're almost going to be looking at this one through the lens of the other. And, you know, having watched it, it feels to me that Valhalla is a bit pacier, a bit less mythic. Do you feel there's a thread running between the two?
4: We share the, we shared Viking DNA. There's no question. I mean, you know, it's um, it, it, those kind of questions ought to be very difficult to answer, but they're really not. Okay, I mean, I'm you know anybody who has seen Elizabeth and seen Die Hard know that Jeb Stuart and Michael Hirsch are two different types of writers, and I, I I I think Michael is a spectacular writer, and I'm a huge fan. Of the six seasons of the Vikings, but the one thing that I would never be able to do is write a Vikings episode, and I had no desire to write season seven of the Vikings um, the You mentioned that Michael's characters uh, possess a lot more of the mythic aspect of it. Well, in that particular time in the Viking history, they are more mythic, you know we know less about them. Um, you know, a character like Ragnar Lothbrook, you know, comes in and out of history as opposed to being a well-defined character. Whereas, when we get to the 11th century, Harold Sigerson took a whole group of skulls of poets, with him wherever he went. So they wrote. They were his press agents. They wrote great, glowing things about everywhere he went. And of course, you have to look through that with the lens as well. Emma of Normandy, you know, she she wrote her own biography, which is pretty glowing as well. So you know. We have a lot more written down. We can look at the Bayou Tapestry and see Emma. We can see things that you know that were not present in the original Vikings. So, yeah, if, if my characters seem a little bit more um, uh, or a little less mythic, it's because we're moving into a different point in history where people are starting to take note and write things down, and uh, we're getting a little bit uh, a little bit more under the microscope.
3: still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: You know, uh, we would love to tell the full Leif Erikson story. And for me, it's not just a matter of, hey, let's send him to the new world. It's like, how how did he have the, the, the wherewithal to fight those great Atlantic currents that he could find his way there?
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply.
0: And I'd like to circle back as well to Leif's sister, Freydis. She's one of the three main characters, but arguably perhaps the one we know the least about. She's listed in two sagas, and one she's quite the hero, and the other she's quite the villain. Who are we getting here in your story?
4: I think you're getting an amalgam of this. Uh, again, I, um, I tried to take from these characters, uh, look, I'm not, ta- I'm not taking, uh, trying to tell a documentary of Freda's Eric's daughter. Um, uh, and if, even if I did, it would be, it would be through a lens that is, you know, eight centuries away. So I don't, I, I, I wouldn't feel accurate doing that but i do think that the the sagas point out certain uh aspects of her character and also from a from a dramatic uh historical dramatic standpoint there are other features that i have to deal with for example what does she share with her brother Leif? what does she share from with her mother what did she pull from her mother, to, That, that I, we're going to see her, her mother. We're going to see other characters that would have had influences on her. And that's part of the fun of watching something dramatic, um, uh, it, you know, for you to suddenly say, oh, I see where that came from, that violent streak. Or I see where that tenderness comes from and things like that. And, you know, fortunately, we're, we've, we're really blessed with a fabulous actress, you know, in who 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 really can embody so many parts of a very complex character.
0: And it did strike me as well, I think I've got this right, that when I was watching the TV series, all of the warrior women in the show are pagan Vikings. There aren't any who are also Christian. I think I've got that right. But is that an intentional decision and commentary?
4: Um, I don't think, uh, I don't think, I think we can qualify that by saying that there are um, maybe the Main characters in in season one, okay, but there are a lot of there are a lot of Viking women who fight in season one who probably were Christian, okay. They would be in the in the forces and the army and in the invasion force back in Cadigat and other places like that. So um, yeah, it's a time period of, of a mix, and a lot of times you may have been pagan and and yet you wore a crucifix around your neck because it was much more you know it was safer. It was, it was safer. These, these mass conversions or forced conversions were especially with Olaf Harrelson, Olaf, the, the South, uh, th- th- those are pretty brutal. I mean, you know, they Vikings took that Christian, that Christian conversion pretty seriously. So, uh, you know, you, you know, you raised your hand when you were told and you, you know, and you wore the crucifix. So it, it became more and more the pagan, Parts will be forced underground.
0: To broaden the conversation a little, it strikes me that the Vikings as a whole remain a wellspring of fascination for us right now, especially in pop culture. And we've got Vikings are Hallow, your own show. We're about to get a new season of The Last Kingdom. There's a film coming out of spring called The Northman. What is it in your mind about the Vikings in general that's delivered this kind of enduring appeal?
4: The jaded answer is that we love Viking shows just like we love dinosaur shows. You know, it'll always be an enduring genre of, of that type of thing. But personally, what I was drawn to is uh, it, was a, it was an incredible culture at the turn of the millennium where you know, there was an egalitarian society where y- your glory, your success, your, your, the way you approach life could be celebrated, and you could actually rise out of you know a, a situation that is similar to how Ragnar Lothbrok and, and, and Michael portrayed that. It's a, a society where women could own property, they could rule countries, they could divorce their husbands. Uh, you know, when you get to 1066 and William the Conqueror comes in, that kind of like was the, became the Dark Ages for women's rights for the next thousand years. So. Um, uh, it, it becomes again. There's a sense of sort of this going back to your very first question about Vajra. There's this almost nostalgia about this particular period in terms of the egalitarian or the uh, or, or the, uh, the 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 chance for ambitious behavior that could be celebrated in an, in an equal society. It, it it also from you know you're talking to an old action writer here uh it, you know it also gives you the plans for lots of terrific action which um you know is is not knights on horseback uh it's a different it's much it's a much darker it's a much more medieval it's you know uh, uh an interesting time what i think you fans i'm i'm one of them one of the things that i loved about michael's show was that he blew life into a culture that we really thought we knew only as a barbaric society. And we saw that they cried when their children died. And we saw when, you know, that they had feelings and they had, you know, uh, vices and all of those things, just like normal people in our society. So anyway, uh, that part of of the story crosses from Vikings to Valhalla. And uh, it's part of that DNA that I was talking
0: about earlier. It would be remiss of me speaking to you if I didn't acknowledge that your first screenplay was actually one of the finest Christmas movies of all time. I am, of course, talking about Die Hard. And for me, that film contains one of Hollywood's great villains in the form of Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber. So my tenuous, very tenuous, linked question is, who in your mind is the Hans Gruber of the Viking world?
4: Oh, uh, if if Hans is good, we've got two or three that I think are great. You know, I just, I think villains, I think what made... You know, Alan Rickman's performance so great is that you could you could see somebody that you worked with in his character. You could see your boss in his character. You could see, you know, there were so many human elements that he brought to that that makes that a real good piece. And so what I look at when I'm working on these characters is really important to to sort of define a character as villainous or the villain um you know my villainous characters uh, uh for example Yalcora, who appears you know um in the first season, is a christian zealot he he feels driven to you know to eradicate you know the the, the pagans and because he is such a zealot because you can almost identify with his his approach uh he becomes even more terrifying to watch because he's identifiable. You know, he's not somebody that's just has dropped down from outer space. And he has some sort of ideology that you can't touch or you don't really understand, but man, he kills people. And that's what, I mean, everybody killed people by this. So it's like you gotta have some reason that once you understand where he's coming from, it's, it sort of sets off alarm bells. You, you, once you understand what makes a villain tick, Then you're part of the story. I also think that, um, you know, this is not a villain in the truest sense, but he has sort of an anti-hero aspect that's wonderful to watch is Johannes Johannesson's Olaf, Harold's half-brother um an, another another zealot but somebody who is a little bit more sophisticated say than you who has a different he's working on a different plateau knows more these are more worldly vikings you know he's lived and worked in, in for athelred he has been out of scandinavia he has a broader image of what the world is and that makes him a more terrifying and scary character to watch
0: as i was thinking about those questions certainly olaf was coming to my mind Um, but moving on. So, you know, we're not going to spoil the show for our listeners, but suffice it, it's going to take us onwards to meet some more historical characters who we may be familiar with. Olaf we've talked about. We'll see Edmund Ironside. We're going to see King Canute. We're going to see Emma of Normandy. And actually, we should talk about Emma of Normandy a little bit more because you mentioned about Viking women having all these rights, but it's some real juxtaposition with Emma. She has all this power, but she's also quite threatened and it could be taken away it, it was a great character to
4: talk about because you know she she was fascinating to me um you know here's a, she comes over as a as a teenage girl from normandy where she had very very few rights to england as a bride of king Athelred, um, who was much older and within the course of 10 years becomes the second richest woman in europe and she did that she she negotiated her dowry she she was able to um uh, sort of take over the tax situations of certain key cities in in southern England, which were bringing in lots of revenue. Um, and as you said, if the Vikings came over and England lost, she had a lot to lose. I mean, she could be sent back to Normandy. She could be she could lose all her rights and her properties and you know her money. Um, uh, and so I found that a very interesting character. We know historically she didn't and I don't want to spoil this for you know the audience but um, you know I found that Emma becomes uh, a, a fascinating character and she you know she becomes very close to Canute. and what we what we've what we've learned over the years is that it set up a um, and this is one of those gray areas that we were talking about earlier which is fun to write and we do know that, Earl Godwin, okay, who, you know, whose father loses their title and loses lands, loses everything. He goes from having nothing to finding a way into Athelred's court, to then finding a way into Canute's court, to then marrying into the Royal Danish family, to finding a way to move up the food chain. And as a son, you know, uh, Harold Godwinson, who as we know, well, you know, look, I'm an American and I still know that Harold Godwinson goes up against, you know, William the Conqueror. So it, it's fascinating. But at this exact same time, Kevin, you've got Emma and Emma's offspring, her, you know, her two sons from, you know, her marriage with Althured, Alfred and, and and Edward, and she's got Hartha Canute. This sets up the next 30 years of English history. That's just fascinating. They're great characters, to play in and you know, to play with in this, in this time period,
0: Well, you speak of it setting up the next 30 years of history. I know you've wrapped on season two. So where are we going next with these characters? Well, I, I'm just going to, you're just going to have to tune in for that.
4: I, I, I can't even <laughs> tease you with that, but I do think you, you we've, we've touched on some of the things that we're really hoping to see. You know, uh, we would love to tell the full Leif Erickson story. And for me, it's not just a matter of, hey, let's send him to the new world. It's like, how, what made life tick? How did he, how did this one particular person, just not bravery, but how did he have the the, the wherewithal to fight those great Atlantic currents that he could find his way there? So I think what you'll find in future seasons is the the journey that he goes through in terms of learning and getting more Tools in his toolbox, let's say, to become a better navigator, a better explorer, a better adventurer. Um, I, I, I think that we will follow Harold's story, uh, which is fascinating. You know, this this someday king of Norway. Well, he didn't just, you know, he didn't just boom pop into being the king of Norway. So, what happened in his journey? Why? Why does he sort of step off the stage for the next, you know, ten years or fifteen years? Um, and uh, yeah there's there's so many other parts of this that are fun to explore, so there's a lot of there's a lot of viking lore to be mined out there for future seasons
0: do you have it mapped out all the way to ten sixty six in your mind
4: i do i definitely do yeah so i wouldn't have, i wouldn't have started if i didn't have a pretty good idea where where these characters go and that helps me because you know as we we're going through season by season it's 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 fun to tell the season story, but you're also building a larger a more complex story as well. So um, you can kind of keep your eye on the overall arc, which which is a lot of fun.
0: And there's a nice thread running through it as well, because there's William the Conqueror, and I'm going to get a number of greats wrong here, but he's the bloodline of Rollo, who we established right at the beginning of Viking season one.
4: It, it, there's so many nice, you know, uh, 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 pieces of this story that kind of fall back on it. So, so is Emma. You know the fact that Emma is not that far removed. I mean, you know, uh, you know. Of course, your audience knows this, but lots of people, you know, that forget. And in fact, a lot of the Saxons had forgotten that that the Normans were Normans because of the Northmen. It's worth reminding them that uh, Emma comes from that bloodline. You know, she comes from Viking blood. And if by the time we take our our story full circle, you know, we, we as you said, you know, William is part of the Rollo thread.
0: I'm really looking forward to seeing how you play these stories out on screen. Jeb Stewart, thank you very much.
4: Kevin, thank you.
3: That was Jeb Stewart, who's showrunner for Vikings Valhalla, which is released on Netflix today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collie.